Hi cheesy people, before we get started I'd like to thank our two sponsors. Scrumptious Reads provides us with a place to record, but it's also the best place to drop large amounts of the folding stuff on interesting cookbooks, books talking about food, drinking coffee, drinking wine, drinking spirits, or just eating generally. They also have lots of interesting courses all the time, so check out their website for more details. Fatgrape.com.au is an online wine store selling interesting wines you will not find at your local chain bottle shop. We talk about a different wine every week, but don't trust my judgment. Hit Stacy up at fatgrape.com.au and ask for the best wine for you. Finally, you can support the show by going to bezopods.thetshirtmill.com.au and buy a cheesy shirt. Enjoy the pod. We, we, we should rap about things that we like, like, like food. That's what? You bugging ass death, you know it. We're gonna be like the Partridge family, but with food. You like food, don't you? Got any uh, white bread? Yes. Oh, wait. I am the spaghetti. Duval, you're not the spaghetti. I am the spaghetti. Let go of the lid. Just spaghetti in you. Is this organic? Sure. Is it grass fed? Yes. Cruelty free? What's so special about the cheese maker? As the saying goes, you are what you eat. And I am freaking cheese. <laughs> Get out of bed for eating crackers. How about four beans, Mr. Taggart? I'd say you've had enough. Welcome to Cheesy Brett. Thanks. Welcome back, Stacey. Thanks, mate. Was just talking before the show about um, how I've been getting into Malbec mm-hmm. a little bit lately and whether or not, because it's such a niche sort of variety, that protects it from sort of mass production of of that type of wine is that the case or is it like you were saying Brett that there's just not there's not enough grapes to to mass produce it yeah you you were saying before that you, there's a lot of five six bucks seven bucks Shiraz out there yeah or, or Cab Sav or because there's a sea of Shiraz being grown right yeah right in the in the in the vineyard in Australia I think 40% of the vineyard is Shiraz. Oh, really? It's huge, right? Wow. And so therefore, there's so much being grown that they, they can actually push together these wines and, and make millions of litres at, you know, two bucks a litre and sell it to the consumer at five bucks a bottle, you know. Yeah. But when it comes to Melbourne, you know, where is the Melbourne? Who's growing it? And if they're growing it, they're going to probably get a good price for it. So... And probably put a bit of time and effort into it as well. Yeah, which well, is that, the was other the, thing, right? that was the thing. You sort yeah. of then you've almost got to make a premium or, or a good wine yeah. because you're going to have to get a little bit more per, per bottle because you're not being able to go into that cheaper market. Is that the case? That, that's right, and you're not sort of mass producing it. And a lot of the time too, when when you start thinking about wine making in general, and you're you're sort of comparing the the large volume of quaffing wines out there that are done relatively cheaply. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the cropping levels can be really, really high on that vine, right? So like anything, if you, if you ask something to produce too much of something, it's going to sort of get washed out a little bit. Yeah. And so, you know, in those very big uh, wine companies potentially that are producing millions of litres, they might be asking their vine to give them 10 kilos per vine uh, you know, okay. in grapes yep. because they'd need that amount of volume, whereas... The guy that maybe this artisan wine producer that's doing some Malbec, he'll probably be making sure it's only got one bunch per shoot, and he's and he's and he got doing two and a half kilos per vine, and so, so the wine's a better quality. So that's like anything. The more energy, so the more energy the plant. If like a plant has to produce more fruit, then the quality of the fruit drops. Essentially, Basically, essentially, yeah, and yeah. definitely in the wine business, yeah. Ah, okay. It's how hard you work that plant depends on. You know the quality of the wine you're going to get at the end of the day, because although a winemaker can, you know, um, obviously is important in the process, it ends up being the fruit that's the most important. Yeah. Because, you know, because yeah. a winemaker can't make great wine out of bad, bad fruit. fruit. Yeah. You know? And that's why you have the year thing, because some, yeah. it, like you can have a really a really good grower, but if it rains too much or um, it's too dry or the yeah. sun's at the wrong time, then there's yeah. nothing you can do about it. Yeah, and interestingly enough, when you think about, say, 
the larger wines, the quaffing wines out there that you're going to pick up relatively cheaply, yeah. those producers are trying to sort of narrow down any sort of vintage variation, right? Yeah, they're, they're because they're trying, trying to, to make a Coca-Cola make, yeah. that's going to taste the same whether you buy it this year or next. Yep. And so they'll go out of their way to do that by blending in different wines from different regions to make sure if this region had a bad year, they'll take more of the other region to make something taste the same. same. Whereas like, you know, us, smaller wine producers in a sense, you know, we're dependent on one vineyard and we can't then decide, oh, we're going to get some Barossa fruit this year. Yeah, that's you right. Know, it's just yeah. one vineyard, it's one valley. And but I would have thought that that's, like, I, I tell the milk story all the time that somewhere in the 50s or 60s, they, I don't know who, I don't know whether it was the consumer or the company, that one of the biggest companies that was selling milk, but someone decided that um, milk should be standard that milk should taste the same all the time. Now the problem with that is, and I guess it's the same with wine, is if you set a baseline that you're trying to hit, you, you've basically set it at the worst milk can taste because <laughs> you can't yeah. make milk in the middle of winter when you're feeding them hay taste nice and creamy of fresh grass. So you've got to bring the good milk back to that milk. And so milk basically got worse for everybody, but it tasted the same, or, you know, they didn't want, but now you can buy six or seven different types of milk where it's essentially out of a cow pasteurized and put in and um the scenic grim stuff you can tell when they've had rain because yeah. the, the the cream content grows so now the other one i wanted to ask before i forget is weather events do you guys look at weather events and think sort of three years down the track this is going to be like this huge amount of rain in new south wales victoria and south australia at the moment is that going to impact wines in next year the year after the year after that does yeah. yeah definitely like you know w- with the vine you you're laying down a cane this year to get some grapes off it but actually the buds the buds were were we become um, fertile through the previous summer so for instance if you've got a, a wet cold summer happening especially in that january february period then you know your fertility the following year is going to be down. Yeah, okay. So you, definitely it happens years in advance what you might be getting out of a crop um, in, in years to come from a, a particularly wet summer, for instance, in, yep. the, in the wine business. Yeah. And what about the, the flip side in terms of uh, when you get like a great wine and you know the conditions that happened the year that you had a great wine, do you get excited when something like those conditions happen again? Do you, do you sort of sort of bookmark that particular wine and say well that might, that one has the potential to be a great wine again because the conditions were so good sure you'll be looking at that and you'll be hoping it'll be the same but no vintage is ever exactly the same, same. Right? the rain levels are going to be always a little bit different something's going to be different yeah but um you know at the end of the day um and i think it's about rejoicing that year right yeah so although that particular syrah mightn't be your favorite syrah you understand it came from that year yeah and that year the weather gave us that and so this is what the fruit produced and so this is the wine we produced and although it's maybe not your favorite it's one of them and people get into that and they actually rejoice every vintage and yeah and even when you get to the great wines of the world that costs you know five hundred dollars a bottle every year they're going to cost you five hundred dollars a bottle but they're not going to be the same either no are they well, and, and I think because it's so subjective and it's the way your palate grows, like I've said to Stacey before, because I drink a lot of cheaper wine, I think my palate has developed into liking those really young sort of... Um, Fruit-driven... Yeah, like yeah, maybe a little bit raw. Like um, I've had a couple of more expensive wines, you know, at friends' places or we've gone out or something... And sometimes I find them too smooth, too um, not punchy enough almost. Mm. Um, also, going back to your question about the weather events, like, and sometimes a weather event might uh, create a vintage to go a particular way. And a really good example of this might be 2002 Coonawarra. 2002 Coonawarra was a very, very cold vintage. And so the wines on release, uh, things like your Cabernets, for example, would have looked quite closed, you know, perhaps not the same level of fruit ripeness as uh, 
2001, which was quite a warm vintage. And uh, on release, I think a lot of people would have tried them and gone, oh, geez, I'm really disappointed in these wines. And that was a pure representation of the, the fact that the, the, the vintage, the growing season, wasn't as warm as what Colonel Laura would normally expect. And it was much cooler than the previous year, which was quite a hot year. What we also found, though, is eight years down the track, 2010, 2011, those 2002 Cabernets all of a sudden really came to life. Yeah, right. If you'd bought some and actually hung onto them and put them down in the cellar and then opened one up and let it let it breathe, you were in for a magical glass of wine. Yeah. It just had to... It being that really cold vintage, you just kind of had to leave it alone for a while. They weren't the kind of wines to drink on release. Then when 2011 in South Australia happened, which is the coldest and wettest vintage in recorded history... I immediately thought back to 2002 Coonawarra and went, you know what? The wines might not be fantastic right out of the gates, but those that had really old vines and access to really good fruit will still make good wines. And in five, six, eight years' time, those 11s are going to just be singing, absolutely singing, based on the track record of what 2002 did. Is there, is there does everyone in your, like your circle, though, that think the same way and buy up all of those to sell them away or is cellaring sort of not is, is cellaring a really niche small like outside of wineries mm. do, do, do many people sell it outside of wineries other than well I think the stats show that most wineries consume the 24 hours, hours. of buying it right? yeah, actually right. current, current, current Nelson Delta will tell you that 70% of all wine purchased in Australia is consumed within 2 hours of purchase and what yeah. about restaurants and and like exclusive bottle shops and stuff like that yeah, do they, they do a bit them. of cellaring I'm sure or? exclusive restaurants do too um, but we just don't have the culture or we don't have the buildings to sell it yeah do yeah you know what I mean? and that, that is the 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 the, the, the space is the biggest issue because i mean when i was at tattersall's club i started building an incredible cellar i had a 400 wines on the list at any one time and another eighty thousand dollars in stock put away in long-term storage at wine Arc. but that is a rare example there you know guys like gerard's over here and you know, even the Arias of the world don't have these big sellers to buy wine with the view of saying, I'm going to bring this out at the 10-year mark and see how it looks. And if it's not quite ready yet, I might put it back again and, and leave it another five years and revisit it, you know. Um, you know, the Royal Mail in Victoria is a fantastic example of one incredible wine cellar that was sort of put together over 40 years. And part of it came from a, a guy's own personal collection. One of the owners ah, right. sort of donated, a bit like Rockpool, you know, he donated a fair bit of his own cellar to the uh, to the restaurant, so they right off the bat had access to some phenomenal wines. But those situations are pretty rare these days. And I guess that's sort of that's a good building block to then, you know, it'd be hard if you open a restaurant today to sort of go, oh, by the way, can I, can we have a hundred grand just to lay down some yeah. some oh, yeah. wine stocks? You know, it's very commercially very difficult. It's a lot yeah. of money to tie up, and and space is the big issue. A lot of people don't have room to put the wine anywhere. You know. Yeah. Well, um, I, I always think because I make my own cheese, and um, you know you watch cheese slices, and Europe is just rife with abandoned tra- train tunnels and yeah. all these you know aqueducts, or and aqueducts or, or castles with you know a hundred meter square cellars, and you know all, all these sort of very naturally temperature controlled uh, areas that are great for that sort of thing, I guess. Mm. So yeah. And it that's is. what we need. We need we need houses with cellars. Yeah. To sort of to start a wine culture of, of aging wine and putting it away. Yeah. yeah. We just sort of don't have that unfortunately. So that's why it's good to get wine fridges and things like that. But they're never going to replace that cellar you can walk into. And, and was it was it? I think it was um, one of the guys on the Sydney Swans, and he went away. He lost a big final, <laughs> a big semi final, and he came home and he had like he had a couple of bottles of Grange and. I think he had like 50 or 60 bottles that he built up and he had a wine um, fridge and the thing had malfunctioned and frozen all the wines. Oh my god. Oh. As you do. <laughs> and like he had it insured but I think some of those wines were not wines that you could just go out and Replace. go to the bottle shop and go oh you know have you got a 62 grange that you yeah. can sell me Hello, sort of thing. GIO insurance. Um, <laughs> can I get my money back on this $13,000 bottle of Mouton Rothschild? Yeah. <laughs> no I'm sorry so you can't you know like so, um, and I don't think it was particularly, um, like, you know, it wasn't a, like an Aldi wine fridge or something like that. Mm. I think it was a, 
you know, a well a well regarded brand of, of wine fridge. But yeah, man, that'd be us. that would be uh, that would be heartbreaking if you. You know, I've heard great stories and some hilarious stories of people who have you know they've had a big dinner party and they've got to the end of the night and there was only one bottle of wine left in the house and it was the the bottle of Grange that they'd bought for their son's birth year or something. And they knocked it off anyway. And they've, they've ripped the top off it and the following morning with a horrid hangover oh, they've kind dear. of woken up and gone, oh dear God. And you can't even remember the taste of the wine when you get to that point. It's just blurs into one. Thank you very much. We have some chartoucherie. Yeah, looks good. Thank you. Mm, is that some brisola? Thank you very much. We're going to have a glass of wine with this, you think? You asked for some glasses. I did, I did, I did, I did. We're going to post, you know. Brett and I are working. <laughs> no, really. Um, so what about wineries though? How many, um, how many wineries are laying down sort of stocks for the future? Like, do, like you were talking about that one that, that took eight or nine years. Yep. Do, like obviously the winery is the one that knows better than anyone that, that thinks that that might be the case. If that's the case, will they hold on to the majority of their stock for that year and try and release it in in eight years' time, or if, is it just too expensive? Yeah, if the accountants would let them, right? Yeah, okay. it just depends how strong their balance sheet is. Because um, uh, you know. somebody like Taylor's, for example, would be able to do that because they make very, very, very large quantities of wine, and so it would be absolutely no issue for them to be able to say, you know, let's put um, let's put a pallet of this 2010 Cab away. Uh, and revisit it, you know, in, in eight years' time and see how it looks. And then we'll do a museum release and, you know, uh, send that out to everybody on the, on the, the database and blah, blah, blah. Um, but, you know, like a good example, I mean, Brett might make, you know, 20,000 bottles of Pinot in a given vintage versus 800,000 dozen Taylor's Cab wow. Sav. Mm. So it's it's very difficult for us to then say, well, we're going to put... I mean, it'd be lovely to start a museum release up um, and keep quantities back, but it's a very difficult thing to do when, you, when you're only starting with small quantities. And the idea is really, I guess, to sell... You know, wine is made to be drunk. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know... Um, and we'll get to that. You know, in Australia, just, we've got a very young business, right? Yeah. You think about it. Our, our wine business in Australia has been going really effectively in any sort of scale for only 40 years. Which is not really that long. Much, is it like, when you think about, you know, what our European counterparts have been doing and, and the size of their wineries and the, and the centuries they've been making wine for. And it seems like um, the Australian wine industry hasn't really shaken out into fully formed traditions. Is, is yeah. that a bit... Is that, is that reasonable to say? Like It's reasonable to say that, and I think it's an interesting discussion to start because, you know, do you want traditions? Do you know what I mean? Well, I talk about this all the time in cheese, and, and the story I use is um, there was an American cheesemaker, and they were making their biggest cheese, which I think was a, a, a brie. They call it something else because they're in America. And they had a huge vat. takes two tonne of milk, and it brings the milk up to it, they put the, the culture in and then bring it up to a temperature and it sets into the curd. And again, it malfunctioned and it went 12 degrees higher than what it should have. But it still set the curd, it just wasn't the right temperature for the cheese that they are making. Mm-hmm. Now if you were in France and you had a tradition, you would have to just bin that two tonne because you, you're making something and it's got to follow all the steps. And they just went... Let's just make it anyway. Let's just keep doing something with it. Now that is now their signature cheese. That is the cheese that they make. Yeah. And it is an amazing cheese. I've tasted it. Um, it's like a, I think they, it's like a washed brine cheese. And, yeah. you know, but it just wouldn't have happened yeah. if you had the, the culture that bound you into that particular That's type right. of thing. You just would have dumped the two tonne of cheese. Oh, so, so what tradition does is tradition stops experimentation. And, and luckily, in the new world wine, wineries, we can experiment because do whatever you know, you like. I can do whatever I want. Because although 
the only Appalachian controls that I have is that if I put Yarra Valley on the label, the fruit has got to come from the Yarra Valley, yeah. right? And that's the only Appalachian. Whereas if you're in an Appalachian in Europe, you, you'd be told, well, you can't grow that variety at all, and you only got to grow this variety, and this is when you're going to pick it. Yeah, this that's... Is, this is how you're going to make it. And Stacey told me that, and I just that just blew my mind, yeah. that you get told that you can only pick these grapes, mm-hmm. no matter what the weather conditions are, mm-hmm. no matter whether those grapes are ready or well, not. I hope you're making the right decision, but still, it, yeah. it, it stops experimentation, right? Whereas, you know, in Australia, we I can plant whatever I want in my vineyard, and I can make it however I want to make it. And um, so it, it, it allows experimentation. So that's good, I think, from, from creating some new traditions, potentially, right? Uh, for particular wineries um, but also but from a marketing standpoint it's really tough for us mm. because when you got traditions and people um, this is the way it's been done for centuries people it's, it's an interesting thing too right this is the way it's always been done and they've got to that point because they've ex- they were experimenting initially um, and they've got names for their wines right yeah. so Chardonnay is not Chardonnay in in France Chardonnay is you know um, quite burgundy White Burgundy, and then it's then it's you know it, it's Merceau. So it's a and Merceau is actually the little region that creates Burgundy in this particular way. Mm. Yeah, and, right. and it's called Merceau, and so they can market. They don't market Chardonnay; they market Merceau. Mm. So when Australia, I mean, we go to market something, and we all we can call it is Chardonnay, yeah, which and, which like we talked about before ranges from a five dollar bottle right up to, and you know that's right. Yeah. You could say, oh, I really like Chardonnay, but that could mean a hundred oh, different things. You're not That's wrong. Right. Could mean you like them really lean and really flinty and citrusy. Could mean you love them big and tropical and creamy and lots of nougat and butterscotch. And I mean, there is there is nothing in Australia that says Chardonnay must be made this way and it must always taste like. You know, we've got the misconception of Riesling is sweet because of the Moselle craze back in the 70s and the 80s. We've got... Um, you know, Sauvignon Blanc's popularity was purely out of its consistency. Mm. You could walk into any bottle shop, not know a cl- anything about wine, see the word Marlborough on a label, followed by Sauvignon Blanc, and go, I'm getting that one because my friends have told me Marlborough Sauvignon Blanc's good. And nine times out of ten, they all tasted exactly the same. And which is why I think you, when you see people like me, and I know a lot of my friends do this, they get a wine that they like, and they take a photo of it. Because they know that... They like that wine, not, not that, not that sort of wide ranging. And that's smart, mm. you know. And not, smart. and not even might not even be that brand, you know. Mm. You might you might like this sumo wine, but not that sumo wine. And you might like, like I like the um, uh, Bleasdale Mulberry Tree. You know, it's someone gave mm-hmm. me a bottle for my birthday. I just think it's fantastic, and I'll always, you know, I always grab a bottle of that when I can. How, how do you guys build that, I guess? Just get people to try it, and if they like it, they'll keep coming, make a good wine, and then they'll keep coming back. Yeah. I, I, I keep getting it in the glass. I, I think so. End but, of the day, you just got to keep getting it in the glass. But it would be good, I think, in Australia to, to create some traditions out of the experimentation that's happening mm-hmm. and to create some um, better marketing clout for particular styles of wines in particular regions. Um, does that mean more, like you can't, if you're a small winemaker, you can't do that by yourself. Does that mean more cooperation from a whole bunch of different interests? It would. It would mean an association of winemakers in a particular area getting together to decide to do something. Right? Yeah. You know, we've had, um, you know, we had that really um, problem in the mid-2000s um, where you know, we were in Australia planting a, a grape called Alberino which we were sent to Australia by Spain. It's a Spanish grape. It was imported by the CSIRO and they propagated it and sold it to nurseries who then repropagated it and sold it to farmers like I am and we planted it as Alberino. And then... <laughs> I can see where this story's going. Two, two, three years later, down the track, someone comes in from France and says, that's not, El- that's not Alberino. <laughs> that's, uh, that, that's something else. It's Sauvignon. And so then... I don't know how much was planted. I know I planted four acres of it. Wow. Um, and so I had something completely different on my hands from what I thought I'd planted. And was Interesting it... Interesting stories in there because one... The Spanish, was it useless or was it... Well, I, I make it now, but... but, um, but You're the, about to taste it. The, 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 Spanish, the Spanish sent this as Alberino to Australia, right? So that... And I conject that 
the Spanish don't even know what's in their vineyards. Yeah, right. You know what I mean? So their vast vineyards of Albarino are probably 30% Savignon. And the best Albarino they got is probably Savignon because that's what they sent Australia, thinking it's one of the better ones. <laughs> one of the best ones. Wow. So anyway, and then, so we had this problem. Nobody could call it Albarino because it wasn't. And it had this name Savignon, which not a lot of people had heard of, right? Yeah. It's one of the ancient grapes from which a lot of today's modern grapes come, right? So Savignon's a, a parent of Sauvignon Blanc. It's the parent of Chenin Blanc. It's the parent of Brunevert Lina, Verdello, Petit Mansing. It's the grandparent of Cabernet Sauvignon. So it goes that far back, right? So it's a really interesting grape. But who wants to have a grape called Savignon? You, you know, I can pr- pronounce it because I've been taught to pronounce it, it, right? But the average well, Aussie is going to get confused with Sauvignon. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Because even I, when you started saying that, I'm thinking... Is he yeah, saying? Is, is that, yeah, well, is that a, you know? Am I, have I been pronouncing Savignon wrong? Am, am I getting it wrong? Yeah. So what's what's this one that we're that we're, we're trying? We're trying a knife fury, but that's I, I changed the name of this wine, which is Savignon, because I didn't want to call this Savignon because I thought it was going to confuse everybody. Yep. And so I created a name called Savaro, um, and that is actually, but it's actually the Savignon grape. Yeah. But anyway, um, it's an interesting story and. I think Australia should start calling different varieties different names to create uh, some marketing advantage. Yeah. You know what I mean? Well, that's, yeah. What, why do you, there's n- nothing stopping you, you know. That's right. You can call it whatever you like. Well, yeah, because I, I call, that's the name of my wine. I'm not saying that that grape's called Savaro. Yeah. I'm just saying that's the name of my wine. And it, even um, someone, uh, Q Wine, the other day tweeted a, mm. a picture of a, um, half-naked lady on the front of a wine label with the question of what do you think of this wine label and I think the, the, the thing was that it was such a departure from a traditional wine label and I, I find wine labels fascinating because they like if if you're like me and you just try like I basically throw everything against the wall you know if I see a mixed case on, on the net, I just buy it, right. and if I, you know, if I find something I like, it sort of goes into that little storage container, and I, if I see it again, I'll buy that. But if you do have a wine that's quite nice, and then you look at the label, I think sometimes an interesting label just sort of helps you reinforce that. And if you're wandering through a bottle shop and you see that label, you sort of get that flash of connection, going, "Oh, I like that wine. Yeah. I'll try that yeah, again." People shop with their eyes, very much so. And I mean, well, I, I notice. Like since I've been doing the podcast, if I see this label, it jumps out at me. The Sumo right. label, like right. you know, because I've tried it and I, I like those wines and I, I know what they mm. are. So it's sort of like, oh, there's Sumo. Look at that. That's yeah. Cool. Well, we got this blue label. And it's interesting when we decided to go with blue. Because actually, we wanted our labels just to look a little bit, a little bit old, old world, a little bit mature. Because mm. um, we were, we were very serious at what we do. Although we have fun, we're serious at, to produce something that we really like and. So we want to put a lot of information on that label about what we do, how we do it, what oak we use, what forest, what cooper, what was the bome when we picked the grapes, what was the date we picked the date, what date do we bottle it. It's all on that label, right? Yeah. So it's an information-rich label, and, which makes it look a little bit old world. But yeah. it's... And so the idea of the blue was, because was, um, we found an old tin of Tetley tea, you know, from the 1800s almost, yeah, yeah. So it was just yep. a rusting thing, but it was this pale blue. Blue, yeah. And I said, wow, that's the colour, that's it. And everyone said, don't use blue, because it's a colour for water, mm. not a colour for wine. Ah, <laughs> so anyway, labels, it's, it's an interesting art, um, the art of the white and label. But, um, yeah. but, um, I've had guys, you know, fantastic young winemakers out of South Australia called Wine by Some Young Punks, mm. you know, and uh, they've got these like 19 sort of 30s caricature Yep horror movie sort of labels, you know, monsters, monsters attack. It's got like Godzilla attacking the city and people running away, you got naked on roller skates and there is literally a girl naked on roller skates, you know, with the words hiding. Uh, and, and, you know, they're great labels. They really stand out in a retail sense, you know, they look good. And, and, and I first thought some people would look at them and go, oh, is that just a gimmick to draw you in? But the wine really does back it up. They, yeah, are, they, are, they are supported by you. fantastic wine. But then I've had the opposite effect when I had the monsters, monsters Riesling on my wine list attached, some guys ordered it, I came out, showed them the label, and granted they were in there, you know, the hmm. 80s, they looked at the label and said, oh, we don't want that. I said, why not? <laughs> oh, I don't like it. I said, well, you asked for a dry Riesling, this is the driest one I have, it's beautiful. Clear Valley, you know. Now, what else have you got? And before I could finish saying the word Narpstein, 
they'd already gone, yeah, we'll have that, mm. you know, because they knew it, they trusted it, and it wasn't something sort of left of centre, you know, um, sort of something unusual like this Monsters, Monsters attack was. I mean, what if I told you that, uh, you know, talking about innovation and Australian winemakers doing things differently, what if I said that Ben Porte was ageing his wine underwater? Oh, that's an interesting In the idea. ocean. Submerging it 15 feet under and seeing what it does to the wine. Yeah. You know, it first started with a guy in Spain who, who decided, I'm going to, you know, using a, a particular cork company, they submerged some bottles in an oyster farm five metres under the under, under the surface. Well, I suppose they water, lost a few. They lost water a few. moves its temperature very, very slowly, doesn't it? Yeah, and sunlight's harder to pierce it as well. Mm. So it's a, it's a very, when you think about it, it's a very, very sound environment <laughs> for ageing wine. You wouldn't, you wouldn't want to advertise the fact that you had but why a, not? a couple of tonnes of wine at a particular position in the That's ocean, right. would you? <laughs> All right, yeah, perhaps we're not going to put on there, you know, 22 degrees west and 46 degrees south so, latitude, longitude, Baltic Ocean, you'll, you'll find my Shiraz stash. So, so, suddenly uh, you get some very popular some scuba poachers, diving. Yeah, there's going to be scuba some, diving. But, you know, they, put, they, they started off by putting 2,000 bottles underwater and 2,000 bottles in the cellar. Yep. Same vintage, same wine. Just to see and then tried the two cuvées side by side to see how would it affect the... And they found that the wine aged underwater was more lively had brighter acid it hadn't actually it had actually aged slower than the wine that was in the cellar for two years same as when we first did the cork versus screw cap experiment you know we put some under cork some under screw cap tried them after so many years and the wines under cork had aged more than the wine under screw cap because cork breathes yeah screw cap doesn't you know so i mean like and now we've got there's six countries away in the world where there's winemakers experimenting by aging wine under the ocean or aging wine in oyster farms to see what will it do, how will it affect it. Ben Porte has been doing it for a few years now um, with great results, you know, and I think that's something that we should, you know, well, we could be, you know. Well, when you, you're talking before, like, if you're trying to find something that sort of captures people's attention, that is something that, oh, that's the wine that they age underwater. Yeah. And then people go, wow, really? Oh, geez, that's strange. Does it work? Yeah, it does. <laughs> well, no, it doesn't. Well, that's the... But like the label, it's got to be backed up by... Good juice. Yeah, that's the thing. Got to have thing. good juice. Well, you know? I, the, the funny thing is I ran a live music venue for seven or eight years in the Valley and in Milton, and it was, you know, cheap wine, and we had cheap tailors red that I used to buy off my supply, and I cannot buy anything with a tailor's label on it. Anymore. I know, I know, I know. Like, in my in my head, I know that they probably do make good wines as well as cheap, nasty $5 wines. So Neil Jericho, if you're listening to this, ignore everything you're saying. <laughs> but I can't, I just, I see that Taylor's label and I just, yeah, yeah I just get the flashback enough. of that, that terrible red wine we used to sell. So. Yeah. Hey, that that is really delicious, huh? Mm. Yeah, the Wagyu. It's gorgeous, is it? Huh? So fatty, I just love it so much. The, um, just, the, just a little off topic here, I had some Wagyu tataki at public the other night. Mm. Uh, do you know what tataki is? So it's uh, like a Wagyu loin, and you uh, sort of like a chevichet with what you do with salmon, mm. you know, citrus, salt, pepper, you, you sort of cure it, so it slowly sort of cooks the meat through, but when you... When you so when how thick fish, is it when you're doing that curing, though? Oh, is it just inches. It's, oh, it's, still a, it's still a fillet. Okay. It's still a fillet. Yeah. And then you just roll it across a hot grill, seal the outside, mm-hmm. slice it, and the center's still raw. Yeah. Completely raw. Completely raw. Yeah. And, uh, and yeah, you can see the fat running through the center of it. And you, you usually serve it with some sort of like oyster sauce or citrus soy infused type sauce on like a nice salad or. Ah, oh, beautiful. Yeah. Try it. It's good. Mm. Just that reminded me of it, you know, Wagyu. That nice fattiness. That is fantastic, and yeah. the um, the pickled veg are really, really nice to have in between, isn't it? Mm. Just, just clean it freshens, it, freshens everything up, doesn't it? Yeah, delicious. Yeah, we got we got um, near me. There's this um, another winery called Pimpernel, and it's run by I Mark. Know I know it's run by Mark Horrigan. It's a couple of kilometres from me, and um, he's a character. He's a big guy, like you know, he's he's a big guy. But he's a heart surgeon, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, but he doesn't practice what he preaches, I don't think. Yeah, and right. He's, and he's like so... Loves his food. He loves his food and, he, and he's a big man. And um, so one time there was a journalist coming to the Valley from England. And so he'd got in contact with me somehow and I was going to put a dinner on for him at our winery, right? But I invited Mark to come up too. So, you know, just show some different wines and 
So I said, oh, Mark, bring something up with you, would you? I'm thinking about this really fatty um, salon we've got at the moment. And so here, here comes Mark Horrigan walking in the door from Pimpernel with this, with this pate that was like two-thirds fat. fat. <laughs> two-thirds fat, seriously. And, and, you know, three bottles of his best red. You know? Oh, <laughs> so good he sits down and, you know, seriously, I think he was trying to drum up business that night for his, for his heart business because... But it was just divine, right? Really? And he does this lovely GSM, which is really interesting for the Arrow Valley to really? have a GSM. Yeah. I think it's the only GSM in the valley. I've got some Pimpernel Chardonnay in my wine fridge. Yeah, good stuff. Good. I've got some tens. He concentrates on a lot of Pinot, really. So um, he does some great Pinots. And, but anyway, this, but I, I, just, I think sometimes we get in the food business now in Australia, we get a bit afraid of fat. Oh, Do you definitely. Know what I mean? Like I, I work and everyone in says, "Oh, no, don't give me fat. It's oh, it's too oily, or it's too." Th but actually, that is where the flavour is. And if as long as you're not eating at night and day, oh yeah, it's it's actually good for you to get that into you. I'll only eat things that have been blessed by Gwyneth Paltrow. <laughs> <laughs> um, I work in the butcher industry, and pork for me is a real sort of bugbear because Australian pork has been bred incredibly lean. Yeah. Like they did a talking of marketing, you know, they did this amazing sort of campaign, you know, pork pork being this incredibly lean meat, you know, leaner than anything, but it's just killed the flavour, absolutely yeah, killed the flavour. Yeah. Um, so give me some pork belly any day, right? Yeah, and, and <laughs> give me, you know, from some some uh, some pigs that have eaten outside and have, you know, an inch of fat along their back. So, um, but that's fantastic. That's really nice. Yeah. So the, what was the first one? The first one was uh, like a it's it's a it's a rosato or a rosé, um, and you know I think it's coming. I was, we were just at a bar just before it got dark, and I saw a couple of businessmen um, sitting on at the bar look, overlooking the river, and here they were having a, a bottle of rosé. Right, yeah. I picked it up straight away and said, "Look, that wouldn't have happened five years ago. You wouldn't have seen two businessmen sitting there having a bottle of rosé." So things are changing, right? And I think through the seventies and eighties, the rosé was, you know. Like everything, you know, your greatest success becomes your greatest failure, right? And so, rosé became so successful, it, it sort of killed itself. Matus. From the whole Matus, <laughs> was it? Matus. And, you know, other things that remain unmentioned. But, but you know, rosé is coming back, right? And I think for the Queensland weather, particularly, I yeah. think it's just the best thing. That was very, like... For some reason in my head, and again, I'm in no way educated about wine, but I always think of rosé as like super sweet and sort of, you know, maybe nice for half a glass, but then you would, that, that would be enough. But that was really, really light on the palate. Yeah. And I just felt like I could have quite easily had a couple of glasses of that, yeah. no worries. And it's dry. Yes. It's, it's fermented dry, right? There's no sugar left in that. Mm. And, and that's the thing. And, then, um, and rosé is an interesting thing to make because... There's no sort of particular, it's not a grape variety, right? So rosé is just using black grapes that would, would normally go to make red wine and you get rid of the skin. So, so you, can, you can do any, rosé is yeah. not particularly, it's just any red grape. Any red grape. Ah. And in this case, some white grapes. Yeah. So, so basically, as long as it's got that pale pink colour, you can call it rosé? Or yeah. do you have to have... You can call anything rosé, I guess, but it should look like rose colour. Mm. Um, but it's just, if you get rid of those skins and don't ferment the wine with the skins, it can't become a red wine. So it just picks up a bit of colour in that initial pressing of the, of the juice. Yeah. Picks up a bit of pink colour, you get rid of the skins, and then you ferment it, alcohol fermentation, and you've fermented a pink wine, and then you can call it rosé, right? And so you, with this particular one, it starts out as a, 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 a Pinot Noir and a Syrah that are picked sort of a week prior to uh, when we'd normally pick them for the red wine. Um, they're barrel fermented, and then we add 30% of the Savaro, which is in your glass now, into the wine. So it's the final blend is sort of 35-35 Pinot and Shiraz, and then 30% of Savaro. You see, in Europe, it's outlawed. You cannot mix white and red wine together to, oh, make, right. to make a wine. Mm. Well, that it's gets it's back literally, to your... literally, it's outlawed. But what you can do is co-ferment them together. So, you know, it's quite popular in, uh, in Italy, for example, to take Barbera and co-ferment it with uh, Rolle, or as we would know it, Vermentino, to make a rosé. Um, and so it's a white and a red grape co-fermented together. So when you're, when you're saying co-fermented, so 
We've got to pick you them can, together. You can use you the, the grapes together. together, but you've got to do it from the start. Yeah, pick them you, together, crush them together, ferment them together into barrel or steel, whatever it is you're using. Fermentation takes place together. You can't make two separate wines and then blend them back together if they're one's white and one's red. It's against the law. Yeah. So this would essentially in Europe be outlawed. You know, that's, that's could not a, do it. That's amazing. Could not do it. Do, do, when you have people come from Europe to visit the winery, yeah. do, does that sort of blow their mind a little bit? That, the, that, yeah. the A, that you can do it, and sort of B, that it tastes that good? Uh, <laughs> our ability to do things is interesting, but you know, it's funny because a lot of times they come out, they, they, they want things to taste like they do back home. Yeah. So they're looking, for, they're looking for a wine that tastes like their village, maybe, and it's not going to, is it? No. no. It's going to be different. And so, but I, I think that's... That's good, and most people get that. Um, yeah. I remember meeting Philippe Gigal two years ago, who uh, is the owner, current owner, and one of the winemakers at Gigal in the Rhone Valley. And of course, a question that came up during this this particular sort of uh, education session with sommeliers was, how do you how do you make your Shiraz Viognier? You know, um, and he said, well, uh, you know, I get asked this a lot. People ask, you know, do I do I, co- do I blend them together? What percentage of Viognier? What percentage of Shiraz? And he says, I've never heard of this. When my grandfather planted the vineyard, every 15th row in the Shiraz vineyard was a Viognier row. And they just pick the grapes and make it. And then it. when the Shiraz is ready, we just pick everything. Yeah, and because the Viognier will be really ripe. Yeah, it goes into, the, goes, into the, goes into the crusher and we crush it and ferment begins. And, you know, but there's no such thing as we're taking this much, you know, Viognier and this much Shiraz and we're tinkering with it to try and get the blend right. Just every 15th row is a Viognier vine, and when the Shiraz is ready, off it all comes at once. Yeah. And into the crusher, co-fermented. There's no blending trials. There's no mucking around. It happens in the vineyard. So do that would... But does he think they get more variances in their wine? No. And the beauty of this wine is we tried it against a number of Shiraz Viognier from Australia and from This France. was a Cote Roti, was it? Yeah, Cote Roti. This was the uh, Gigal Cote Roti okay. Amphodium. Okay. And um, we, they asked us which one we thought had the highest percentage of Viognier, just from tasting, and we weren't allowed to know what they were. And, you know, glass four, it looked and smelled and tasted like it had a lot more Viognier than the others, which turned out to be Clonacilla, oh, Shiraz Viognier. And it only had about sort of 6 or 7%. Mm. And, then, and then Philippe dropped the bombshell that his had 15% Viognier in it. But because it happens in the vineyard, it's co-fermented together, there is no blending trials or anything. It was so harmoniously woven into the Shiraz, you didn't really know it was there. Yeah. It was just an exquisite glass of wine. It really was. And, you know, but, but why did they plant one row of Viognier because, um, because in the Shiraz? Because you can't. Because of the AOC rules. Yeah, but, but, but also because they couldn't get the Shiraz right yeah. half the time. And so they needed the Viognier there, which was going to be bloody right by the time they, they, uh, they, they, they picked the Shiraz to give the thing a bit of sugar. Ah, oh, right. But so it was, years a, it was later, a historic thing to actually beautiful. make sure they could actually make the wine good every year. Because the Viognier would add some sugar and add some weight to the Shiraz. Oh, yeah. They knew every time they were going to pick it that they would have that sugar consistency. Because from the those. Viognier ripens earlier than the Shiraz. But. Yeah. But in Europe, and here's another funny fact for you, in Europe you're allowed to add sugar to your wine. Really? But you're not allowed to acid adjust. In Australia, it's illegal to acid adjust, but it's okay. Sorry. Other way. Other way. It's illegal to add sugar, but it's okay to acid adjust. And it's quite funny because when you tell the French that, they're kind of like, oh, this is disgusting, as they're pouring like a 20 kilo bag of Of sugar sugar straight into the tank during ferment because ferment's stored or whatever. Um, you know, and so when you get a vin- because and at the end of the day, we, we rarely, really have trouble getting our fruit ripe enough in this country because let's face it, we are a warm climate nation. We have no issue getting the sugars high, getting it ripe. I mean, 11 and some of those vintages are sort of blips on the radar. But in Europe, you know, it can be very, very cold. It can take a long time to get that fruit ripeness. So sometimes they need to add sugar, but they have no issue with acid because obviously as sugar rises, you lose acidity. Yeah. But when you haven't got the sugar up where you need it to be, the acid's still far too high, so we've got to add some. So what do you do to change the acidity of a, of a wine? You'll add tartaric acid. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, okay. And you can add that, but it's, it's not good to do that, and you try not to do that, but you can do that in Australia. You're allowed to, because Australia's allowed to add acid to make wine, 
but not sugar. The French are allowed to add sugar, but no acid. Because yeah. if you're allowed to add sugar and acid together, you can make one in a thin air. <laughs> yeah, <that's all> right. <laughs> exactly. So, so, so it's sort of like, well, you've got to do something. That's right. Yeah, you've got to do, you've got to do some ploughing at least. Mm. <laughs> yeah, you've got to get your hands dirty a little bit. I mean, come on. I mean, we could make vodka out of anything, but we don't want to start making wine out of anything. Mm. I am curious, though, like, um, other fruits, is it, is it just the lack of acidity? I know we talked about this last time, yeah. but I've got the mulberry cropper again, and I just look at those mulberries, and they've got the colour. I guess they don't have any tannin in them, do they? The anthracyanin in the flesh of the actual grape, and also the tannin is something that is unique to certain plants and vegetables and fruits. You know, almonds, for example, are extremely high in tannin because of the skins. Uh, dark chocolate is high in because of the cocoa has high in tannin. So are tea leaves. Tea leaves are the tea leaves are the perfect example of tannin, pure tannin dissolved in water. Cranberries, um, you know. So whenever you have cranberry juice or pomegranate juice, it's got cranberry a wine. very okay. very high in tannin. You could probably eat yeah, cranberry wine would be would be a possibility. Grapes, of course, um, but then there's not a lot besides sort of. 10 or 15 items that that are that have got that compound that, that bit that balance between yeah they've got the anthracyanin they've got the tannin they've got the the polyphenol is the is the word i'm looking for polyphenol which is what tannin i guess the compound for tannin is yeah um you know you could make something quite similar to one from other fruits but it wouldn't be the same mm, you okay. know I've seen people make dessert wine from unusual yeah. things like passion fruit and lychee and you know there was somebody up in up north in Cairns that used to do fruit based dessert wines um, whether or not they're still going or not but I remember they, they used to do a number of different ones and you know it was great for the tourists of course they'd come and see them and think they were delicious and buy some to take home but was it really wine? Nah, not really. Yeah. It's not really. Mm. Sort of very sweet more, alcoholic more, fruit. More it, was more like, it was more like syrup and jam sort of crossed with a bit of fruit juice, mm. you know, essentially. I mean, it tasted nice, but everything does in small doses. Yeah. So how, um, how concerned are you with uh, climate change? Like, uh, I think we, we're seeing climate change help us and, and, and also go, go against us at the moment because... It's a balance, right? I guess it's easier for you because you can adapt. You're not bound by those traditions. Yeah, that's true. And, and, and so you know, we're seeing now in the Yarra that I would say 25 years ago, the Yarra was producing pinots that were, were quite light. Yeah. And um, now you know, we're struggling to not make them too big. Okay. Because there's just so much, just that little variation that's happened has, has made us now to get that pinot right almost no matter what. Maybe 11 was yeah. a tough year. Other than that, there's no trouble getting it ripe now. Well, um, prior to that, we had a lot of drought years. A, a friend That's of well. mine, uh, Kira, is, has been yeah, going around Kira. doing vintage. And I know she went to... Shandon. Yeah, she In went to Shandon and they, she was finished incredibly early. Just this last vintage? Yeah. Yeah, it all happened early. Yeah. Because oh. we had... Yarra was quite interesting because we had a really... We had summer in spring. Yeah, right. And so in October, we're having 30 degree days. Yep. And um, so what happened, for us at our vineyard anyway, that the Pinot and Chardonnay came off relatively similar to normal, but all those late reds, the Cabernet, the Shiraz, the Nebbiolo, all were picked like a month early. And so your friend would have been crazy busy in the yeah, wine because yeah. everything's coming in at once. Like, and, you, you, and you've got to do it all. And you've got to do it all. So you just keep working 24 hours, I think. Yep. But, um, and so now, because we've got this Pinot, we, got, we haven't got a problem to get it ripe anymore, and we're making better Pinots than we ever have in the Yarra, but now we're, now we're sort of forced to come up with ideas to, to slow down the ripening, right? So not to have it ripen so far. So we're doing things like pruning much later now. Because when you prune a vine... Sort of set the, the timetable for the next year. You, you sort of set it because what happens is that you can prune it in winter when it's completely dormant, yeah. right? There's no leaf. You just prune it, put it away. But as soon as you get the first warm spring day, it starts to think, oh, I'm ready let's, to go, let's right? Go. But if you say prune it just before that first warm spring day, and, and it goes into a little bit of shock, like anything, if you prune something. It takes a week and a half it or takes two a week weeks to, to go, oh, what's going on here? I'm, I'm a bit sort of weary, what's going on? And then it, it won't sprout straight away, right? Yeah. So you might just delay. Just push it back a little bit. A week, and that helps, right? Yeah. And then other things we're doing is that our vineyard's planted uh, north-south, right? 
which was probably great when it was planted 20 odd years ago. Yeah. Whereas now if I had my druthers, I would actually plant it east-west, but I can't change it overnight now. But so then, so the western side of the vineyard is getting a lot of hot afternoon sun now, mm. and probably more than it needs. And whereas if I had it planted east-west, it would sort of go in the middle of the row, it wouldn't shine directly on the berries. So what we're doing is when we, because a vineyard you actually trim, right? Like a hedge trimmer. You yeah. go down a vineyard and you cut all the excess um, you know, canopy off, um, just so the vine then actually starts to put some strength into the grapes and st stops growing tentacles. Yep, yep. Um, so now we're offsetting our trimmers, right? So on the west side of the canopy now, we're leaving an, an extra two inches of canopy. Ah, okay. On the east side, we don't worry so much. So we sort of offset the trimmer. Yep. So we're leaving more canopy on the west and less on the east. So these sort of things we're going through now because of climate change, right? And can you can you do things like you know bamboo breaks on the on the western side to give more shade or is that sort of too extreme? Yeah, I think that's going to be a really engineering nightmare. Yeah, to right. Because you you've got to get machinery in and out, in and out, and you've got one windy day, and you know yeah. it's, it's, that's that's going to be really difficult. But then, what's going to happen in Australia because of global warming? And if it continues the way it is, we're going to see a complete varietal change, right? So we're going to see a lot more Italian reds being planted and less of the, you know, maybe the French reds being planted. Yeah. Because the Italian reds seem to ripen a little bit later. They seem to hold their acid a little bit more than the French reds. So they'll be actually, they're well equipped for hotter days coming in Australia in the future. So we're going to see a varietal mix change. And then what we can also do is we can plant on rootstock that will help the white, help the vine um, ripen later oh, okay so the rootstock can determine that as well rootstock can determine that you can you can buy um, root, you need to put vines and rootstock in our valley because you've got phylloxera which is a bug that kills vine and unless it's on american rootstock all your vines are going to die yep and so but when you go and buy rootstock you can buy types of rootstock that one are drought resistant or not one that handle water logging or not ones that actually progress the vegetative cycle or ones that inhibit the vegetative cycle wow and so if you're thinking that okay well, i don't want my vines to ripen so quickly as they you know i want them to go back to being picked in march 15 rather than february 15 yeah you would then try to pick a rootstock that's going to inhibit the vegetative cycle so, so that, all do, these things you can do to do help. you have to do like do you have to sort of think decades ahead then well, we, mm. we were <laughs> Stacey and I were just talking about this today, you know, it's like, we're coming out with an Nebbiolo next year, right? It's going to be a 2015 Nebbiolo, we're going to launch it in 2017. My first inkling to come out with a Nebbiolo was in 2008. Yeah, right. When I thought, woke up one morning and said, you know what I think is great for this valley? It's Nebbiolo. Because it ripens late, we're getting hotter, um, we've got this fog in the summertime, the same as they get in late summer, the same as they get in Piedmont, we have the cold nights, we have the and I had this like brainwave. I'm going to do Nebbiolo. An epiphany. <laughs> epiphany. An epiphany. And it was it was 2008. I'm going to launch my first Nebbiolo in 2017. So that's taken nine, nine years. years gestation. So that's that's a big gamble then. <laughs> it sure is. So how many acres did you plant? Three and a half. Wow. So yeah. you, and you would have torn vines out to plant it. Yes. Yeah. Tore some cabernet out actually. Wow. Mm. <gasps> I bet that was a... Yeah, no, I probably would never go back and replant that stuff. But anyway, it's, uh. you make those decisions and get on with life, right? But anyway, so you're right. You're planning decades out, you know, yeah. especially in the wine business, because it takes so long to get... Well, especially with rootstock, because, like, I guess you could graft... If you like your rootstock, you can graft whatever you want onto it. You can. But to replace the rootstock means how long before the vines are producing it yet. Well, you reset it cycle zero, don't you? Yeah. Essentially. Yeah. So four years. Yeah. yeah, so I thought about it and thought, okay, 28, I'll do it. Research what rootstock to put it on because I was going to pull out those cabs anyway because it wasn't on American rootstock. Mm. Um, and then had to then order the right combination of clone, which is the clone of Nebula I'm going to, I'm going to plant, on the right rootstock that I think is going to be right for my valley and my hill. Yeah. And so then I put my order in. Now, they're going to have to produce that through one whole summer, right, for me. So, that's so another I, year gone. Another year gone. Then they give it to me, and I plant it. Basically, get very little growth that year. It just starts to come up. Yeah. And then it will take another three years to get a decent crop from there. And that's why I'm sitting here in 2016, still don't have a glass of Nebbiolo in my hand. <laughs> <laughs> but you've picked the grapes. 
Yeah, I picked them in 15. Okay. And, well, um, that's good. And they're in barrel still. Two yeah. years in barrel. Two years in barrel. Two years in barrel. And so two years in barrel, by now you would have a good idea whether it's going okay? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. We, we, we like what we see. Um, and, you know, Nebbiolo's like Pinot Noir. It's sort of the Pinot Noir of Italy and that it's, you know, it's a sort of a, a very interesting grape that it has lovely flavours and, and, and can be sort of very beguiling in its, in, its, in its wafting aromas on the nose. And so they also talk a lot about Nebbiolo be like tar and roses. Yeah. You know, you've got this really tariness, but you've got this lovely roses and violets. Okay. And, you know, we can, and when I smell our Nebbiolo now, straight from the barrel, I'm getting all of that. I, I'm really, I actually served it recently at a wine dinner um, in Victoria, um, where I just took a couple of bottles out of the barrel, right? Um, and, and, and I thought it was just really looking like a, a lovely young Neb, right? Yeah. <clears throat> so... I'm very pleased with what I'm seeing. Um, time will tell, and it's really—it's going to take some time to get yeah, fine age and all the rest of it, right? Once you bottle that, is it something that you drink within a year, or, or are you going to have to wait longer again? Yeah, well, really, if I was in—if I was in Barolo, I wouldn't be able to release it for at least a year. Yeah, right. They, but I, I guess—I guess once yeah. it's in a bottle, you can sell it and stuff to other people when they drink it. Yeah, selling not wines, in Barolo, but <laughs> yeah, it's not a, but um, selling wine is a really important part. So. Mm. And because I'm a small warranty and my balance sheet is not big, you know, when I make wine, I got to sell it. Yeah. And because I got to buy a new oak and I got to pay my staff and I got to prune for the next vintage and you know, so it's it's me. It's about selling the wine. So and just just yeah. just from a viticultural standpoint here, Nebbiolo is the most high maintenance child you can possibly imagine. Mm. Pinot Noir, I guess, is considered the holy grail of winemaking. There's those, and I'm one of them, that would argue that Nebbiolo is the holy grail of winemaking. Because like Pinot Noir, it doesn't like too much water. It sends out tendrils all over the vineyard. Like It's a monster. It's a monster. It's so vigorous. It's the kind of grapevine that if you turned your back on it, you can imagine these tendrils are going to fly out, grab you, and sort of suck you back into the canopy. It sounds like it doesn't sort like of, uh, too much. Yeah, it does, of, it doesn't like... wine for my hill. Yeah, it's, it, <laughs> it doesn't like, you know, it's prone to sunburn. And it is the most difficult thing to grow, but get it right. And it is just magnificent, you know. That's why, you know, some of the great wines of Italy, like, you know, your best Barolos, Canubi, Boschus, and those those iconic little tiny vineyards are worth so much. You know, like the great wines of Burgundy and the great wines of Bordeaux. And, you know, it is a bloody tough grape to grow from a viticultural standpoint. And then, you know, in the winery, again, you, you know, you're sort of giving it two years in oak. And then if you're in Italy... You know, you might have to hold it in the bottle for another 12 months just to qualify for your, your DOCG status before Brett is even allowed to think about selling the bloody wine and yeah. seeing a dollar come back into the winery from a project that started nine years yeah, earlier. Right. You know, it is uh, it's tough to do, um, but the rewards can be great. Yeah. But if you with a, with a variety like Pinot and a variety like Nebbiolo, if you miss, you're going to miss badly. You know, it'll be it'll be one of those epic fail moments. <laughs> Thanks, Stacey. That's good. I've got 100% confidence in the man. I'm sure he and Scott have done a phenomenal job. The wine will look great. So I've got one last question for you, Brett. Do you have wines in that sort of first bottling stage where you'll take a carton and put away just for yourself because you feel that you've done exceptionally well, like almost like a pat on the back? Geez, I'm proud of this wine. I'm going to I'm gonna keep a carton in the, yeah, in the home cellar. I've got some of that, yeah. Mm. It's tucked away, that... I know no matter what happens, I've got that in my home, right? So, mm. yeah, I do that. And obviously there are some wines that I think have really come together beautifully and are just so balanced. And, you know, wine, at the end of the day, wine is about balance, yep. right? It's about, you know, and if you talk about a Chardonnay, for instance, and a, and a Chardonnay of some repute, it's about getting some oak in there, but it not to be oaky, right? And it's about getting some cream into that wine, but... Oh my God! Don't make it butter. Yeah, not you know? over the top. And it's about fruit in that wine, and but don't make it tropical and pineapple. Make it really citrus line of fruit. And it's about acid in that wine, but make that acid soft and long. And if you get all those things together in one vintage, and you get it like a like our 2013 Chardonnay, then you think, wow, this is fantastic. So and I have a box of that when tucked you're, away. When you're sitting there drinking it, can you almost 
remember the decisions you made that led to those that being a particularly good wine? Oh, I think it's... Like, does that run through your head or do you yeah. just enjoy the wine? No, I think there are some things, you, lessons you learn every vintage, right? So you're going to get better. So some of those really great ones, you learn some things and some of the bad ones, you learn some things too. So you always get better. And, and that particular vintage, it was the right crop, it was the right crop level, we picked it the right day. Because that, you, that can vary it, right? Just yeah. you're, you're picking, you're, you're, the date you pick to pick. Right? Yeah. It's very important. And you, you might just get that out by one day or 18 hours and your, wine, your ultimate wine is going to be very different. That's amazing, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. So there's a lot of things involved. and But at the end of the day, it's a little bit of chemistry. It's a little bit of art. And um, it's a lot of passion. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Thanks for coming in, guys. Thank that you. was a good chat. Nice yeah. hour. Thanks. Good man.